The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you tonight. And a special welcome to anybody who's new here for the first time. Feel free to come up and say hi at the end if you'd like, or Jean Pagastrom's here as our program host over there fixing the door. So if you have any questions, you can always check in with Jean on your way out. So I thought it might be a nice time. It's been a while to check in a little bit more formally about daily sitting practice. Often people have a lot of, we have a lot of baggage, right? It's one of those things like dieting or, you know, where we create these expectations only to set up, you know, for a failure, like not to live up to what we want. Oh, this is so great. I'm going to sit an hour every morning and an hour every night. And then we just assume that in a couple months, you know, we'll be fixed will be perfect. And then, so then when that doesn't happen and we don't sit an hour every morning, every night, then the fact that we're not fixed, that we're still a suffering human being, it feels like our fault, you know, that I didn't, I could have saved myself, but I'm an evildoer, you know, I'm, uh, I'm bad. So we have a lot of, I just approaches to spiritual life that ends up, you know, it's almost in a frictionless universe. If you push this way, there's going to be an equal and opposite force the other way. There's an interesting thing. I was a classroom teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 80s, in the early 80s. And uh, I used to take my class to the Exploratorium um, in San Francisco. Maybe some of you have been there. It's a great, one of the first interactive science museums in the country. Now they're all over the place. And they had something, I I forget exactly how it worked, but I think it was, um, you'd stand and you could hold on and you're on the circle and it was uh, greased really well. So, you know, you could twist yourself one way, you know, make it spin, but then it would inevitably spin back the other way. And it really demonstrates this principle in a frictionless universe there's always going to be an equal and opposite force, right? If you make a force in one direction, you're creating a force in the other direction. And this is a little bit like when we want to change our life. We create an idea of the good Mark who's sitting every day and never getting distracted, right? And when they do get distracted, when my mind does get distracted, I immediately fix it, you know, and I come back to the meditation anchor or something like that. And we basically sow the seeds for distraction just in the way we set it up for ourselves. And on and on and on, like this. And maybe on a level of the nation, you know, in trying to be safe as a nation, we create the ground for fear, right? In trying to eliminate dangers, we create dangers. On and on and on and on. This is sort of the history of the mind, right? So 
when we approach our sitting practice, when we have a sense that this uh, way of understanding the mind is useful, and so we take on a practice to integrate these teachings that we've been hearing, develop them, set them in motion, we want to take this into consideration. Like, how can we set something in motion that doesn't create inevitably this equal and opposite pushback? Where we're not playing in the world of duality, you know, you go this, you, you have a good, then you have a bad. Calm, you know, this image of a calm mark, then I'm afraid of the agitated mark. A kind mark, then, then I'm afraid of the aversive mark. You know, the wise mark, I'm afraid of the deluded mark. We keep creating these, you know, the shadow. So one of the uh, first things we do when we sit down, it's really this place of humility. We don't come, even if you sit every day, you don't want to show up to sit. Even if you've been sitting every day for years and years, You don't want to show up to your sit with a kind of arrogance. It'd be really nice every time you sit down, let's say you have a place in your apartment, at your house, and maybe in an uncluttered corner of your apartment or whatever, maybe even some, you know, if you can, just have a chair that's just used for meditation or cushions, a blanket that's just used for your meditation practice sort of a dedicated place, maybe even some things there that make that place have a soothing or peaceful feeling, a plant, or if you're sort of like the symbols, then make an altar for yourself or something like that, in front of a window, looking out at a garden or some trees or something like that. So you have the place, and when you sit down, It's okay to know that you don't know, right? To to start all over again, okay? I don't know really what I'm doing here. So, because then, whatever, you're taking a little time to find an intention, to find a motivation that you trust. And it won't be perfect, but it will be fresh and real. It won't be like you imitating what you think meditation practice or what you think a spiritual person does when they get up and meditate. You'll be finding it fresh within, you know, the swirl of your own mind, your own experience. And so one version of that, sitting down in your place with some humility, is an authentic sense that I'd like to put down the world. (laughs) You know, it's like, the day ahead of me, the days behind me, all the ways I've pushed and pulled or been pushed and pulled by the world, by my life, by circumstance. It's not easy being a human being. You see, it's like that's a pretty authentic, raw, real place to begin. It's not idealistic. It's not hopeful, wanting to be saved, wanting something to save us. It's kind of grounding. There's something very grounding about acknowledging how exhausting it is being a human being, trying to feel safe, trying to be liked, trying
trying to get ahead, trying to find justice or to be treated fairly or to be recognized or, you know, all the forces that make up our lives. So we start there. It isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy having a conditioned mind. It isn't easy having an aging body. It isn't easy for me to sit here when I have so many compulsions about what I need to get done today or what might be interesting in the news that I'd rather be listening to or reading about. And in that more authentic place, there will arise something that has some real intuitive wisdom. Is there a way to be a human being and to at least temporarily put down the load, the burden of being a human being. So for this 30 minutes, this 45 minutes, this 10 minutes, or whatever you have in the morning or evening, to put down the weight. Right? And that's really the first instinct in practice is, there's a, a proverb in, in sort of German culture What's the point of running when you don't know the way? I don't know. You know, I'm, I have some German heritage, about half or a third of my heritage is German. And, and uh, so I know a little bit from that side of the family, you know, pretty industrious folks, generally speaking. So it makes sense that a line like that would come out, like what's the point of trying hard, working hard, getting ahead, when you don't really understand the causes for happiness, right? So that means we're understand the value of putting it all down instead of just continuing the running, because we could, and in, in some ways, it would be useful from the point of view of getting ahead. It would be useful to sit, you know, in that beautiful meditation posture. And in that relative stillness, relative clarity, to worry about what I'm going to do today. Think about what I'm going to do today. Plan what I'm going to do today. Get it all figured out. Get my plan. And then go do my day. That would make me more efficient in some way, right? So we're doing something really radical. We're saying for this, I'll just say 30 minutes, for this period of time, I'm not going to pick up all the stuff related to survival, social survival, financial survival, you know, anything related to surviving from a psychological, emotional, spiritual, any sense. I'm putting all all that worry about surviving down and I just want to understand So that's the humility piece. And that's really where we want to begin our daily sitting practice from that place of humility. And that means we we have to establish in the mind that this isn't the time to worry about this. I mean, worries will come up. Planning mind will come up. All painful experiences will come up. All that stuff's going to come up. So if we don't find this authentic place that this time is different, this time is not about picking up some piece of my life and chewing on it, this is the time to 
put that stuff down. So we're not, we, it will show up anyway, but we're not intentionally using the time to solve the problems of our life. Now, it, like I said, it might actually be quite useful for many of us to put aside time to think about our life or to talk it over with a good friend who knows how to listen or to journal or whatever kind of technique that you find helpful to think through the problems of your life. But that's not our meditation practice. That's another time that you're maybe responsible for finding, but not the meditation. Because the meditation practice comes from the place that I'm tired of thinking about my life. I'm tired of thinking about my problems. I'm tired of thinking about how to get ahead or what I think might fix my life or make me happy. So for this 30 minutes, for the rest of the 23 and a half hours, you do whatever you want, honey. But for this 30 minutes, I'm not going to pick that stuff up on purpose. It may show up because of the force of habit, but then I'll put it down again. And it shows up, I put it down. And when it does show up, we practice seeing it as, well, that's just thinking being known. We're not so interested in the content. The content might be like, this is how you solve your life, buddy. This will do it. You know, you say this to this person, and then you do this over here in this other situation in your life, and then it's going to be smooth sailing. So it might seem, the content of the thought that you have might seem like, oh yeah, but from the point of view of awareness practice, that's just a thought being known. And if there's a lot of excitement with the thought, that's just a feeling being known. Because for this 30 minutes, we've decided we're not operating on that level of circumstance, trying to get ahead, a person who wants life to work better. We're doing, in a way, you, you could call, call it um, you know, foundational or basic research on what it is to be a human being. We're going right back to the very beginning. We're not having any presumptions about anything. Like that I'm a person, that I'm a person who likes this or doesn't like that, or that needs to deal with my financial situation or anything. We're just starting over on the basic level, which is, There is a mind, or you could say there is a heart that's sensitive. And it's sensitive to two things, just to keep it simple. It's sensitive to the activity of the mind, thinking, emotions. And it's sensitive to the activity of the body, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching. So I'm coming to that level. I'm not going to presume anything else except there's sensitivity. There are things being known. And I'm going to really observe my present moment experience in this way and see if there's anything to learn. So that really brings us to the second step in daily sit. So the first step, and really it's important to emphasize this first step because all the other steps don't really flow. And I'll put this list up on our blog. I'm going to just make a few changes. So Gabe will probably get it up on the blog on our website on Wednesday in case you want it. So the first is just taking the time to come to this place of humility and enough humility that you have some willingness, some clarity about this isn't the time to worry, to plan, to fix, to judge. That stuff may happen, but I'm not going to intentionally, on purpose, spend the time planning, worrying, figuring things out. 
So when I notice that in a gentle, loving, but persistent way, honey, this is not the time for that. You want to think about that? That's great. It might be actually useful, but not now. Now, that's just a thought. And if there's an emotional charge to those to that content, that's just a feeling being known. It's just something being known. I'm operating, I'm going back to zero point, which is there is sensitivity, and this sensitivity is sensing things, right? There's this contact. In Buddhism, we call it contact, sense contact. A thought, in a sense, a thought touches the sensitivity of the mind. A sound touches the sensitivity of the ear. A sight touches the sensitivity of the eye. A touch touches the sensitivity of the skin. Smell touches the sensitivity of the nose. Taste touches the sensitivity of the tongue. So this is what it actually means to be a human being. And so this practice, the second step then is, once we have a humility, then we want to come back, and often I'll call this the working ground or the training ground of our practice, where we're cultivating a non-conceptual continuity of awareness, present moment awareness. So we generally, not always, you can have an open attention, but especially for people relatively new, which means like the first 20, 30 lifetimes. (laughs) It's kind of a joke. (laughs) I'm not telling you you should believe in rebirth, but... But for a long time, we need a training ground. So something like whole body awareness is a common training ground. Or just feeling the sensations of the breath and the body is a common training ground. Or even hearing is a common training ground. So the idea with these training grounds is we're training the mind to be aware of the experience of this particular experience of hearing, sensing the whole body, sensing the breath in the body. You can even do a body scan as another anchor or working ground, training ground for this continuity of non-conceptual awareness. So there may be thinking, but we're not attending to the thinking. We're not so concerned about the content of any thoughts that are coming and going. We're really using the training ground. Let's just talk about it for convenience in terms of the movement of the breath in the body. So let's say you're feeling the breath here as a movement in your abdominal wall, right? It goes out as you breathe in, comes in as you go, as you breathe out. So there's just natural movement of the abdominal wall rising with the in-breath, falling with the out-breath, right? And it's very common for the mind to want to conceptualize or even create a mental image but we want to actually feel that movement, right? It's a bodily movement. It's sensation there as the, bo- as the abdominal wall rises and as it falls. So, of course, this is not easy because we mostly are thinking our way lost in thought through life, right? So we're training another thing, training in another thing, which is to have that present moment non-conceptual. So we're using the experience of sensation. So the actual sensation of movement, the rising, the actual sensation of movement, the falling, right? To break the spell, to break the habit of thinking our way through life. Because we want to know, we want to 
ground the mind in this non-conceptual reality. And this is just the beginning. We call this often Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. So we're moving, the, we're directing the sensitivity of the mind in this non-conceptual direction. Things in and of themselves. Sensation is sensation. Sound is just sound. Sight is just sight. Not in terms of the story or the concept or the idea that the thinking mind very quickly wants to overlay on sense experience. And again, we're not trying to stop thinking and we're not making thinking into something that's bad. Thinking is also one of those movements, those natural movements, not the content of the thoughts, but thinking as a movement of mind, right? So the thinking mind or the mind is sensitive to thinking in the same way the eye is sensitive to sight. Oh, that's just thinking, that's just seeing, this is just hearing. All of these different aspects of present moment experience are just being known by the sensitivity of the mind or the heart, by this knowing, uh, by awareness. So the first thing is this humility. And the humility is uh, kind of matures into a resolve for this period of time, for the time of your formal sitting, to put down the world. The world in the sense of you solving problems, you fantasizing, you, you know, kind of proliferating about the stories of your life, not now. And then with that powerful resolve, we're willing to pick up a training, right? Because it's not enough to wholesomely desire to put down the world, you need to actually do a training. So whole body awareness, following the sensations of the breathing, using hearing as just hearing, not your thoughts about hearing, but hearing as a moment-to-moment knowing. Right? We train in the continuity of present moment awareness, non-conceptual present moment awareness. And now you're going to probably be able to guess the third stage is to start getting interested in all the things that make that really hard to do, right? All the ways the mind gravitates back towards thinking, getting lost in thought, thinking about this, worrying about that, planning, comparing, wondering, fantasizing, remembering, and to really get interested, not, don't think that the thought or that the distraction is bad. One of the whole points of taking up that training, like to be with the breath from the very beginning of the rising of the abdominal wall to the very, you know, very end of that rising, and then that little gap in the very beginning of the falling, the exhalation, all the way to the very end, and that little space before the beginning of the next in-breath. The reason we're tracking, we're cultivating this continuity of awareness, because that steadiness of present moment awareness, then when a distraction comes in due to the force of habit, we start to worry about something that's been juicy for us, then we actually get to see it. Because then, in the moment prior to the distraction arising, there was this simple continuity of present moment awareness. It's ripe to see the arising of the distraction for what it is. What is it going to see? Well, it's going to see that that arising, like that worry coming into the mind, that it's not me. I'm not 
making that worry arise in the mind. It just comes due to, you know, these impersonal causes and conditions. And you, in the mind, the wisdom in the mind really senses the impersonal arising of a doubt, a, a hope, uh, you know, whatever the particular quality of that thought, that drama is, it just sees it because the contrast is so distinct from present moment, non-conceptual awareness, the steadiness of that, the continuity of that, and then all of a sudden a little drama is born, right? Because it was sort of lurking there, and then, you know, whatever, causes and conditions were just right, or somebody, there's some external trigger could be, right? You see something or hear something that reminds the mind of something, and then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the drama reforms. And of course, the sooner the, the wisdom in the mind sees that, the less seductive it is. If we catch it three seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds in, it's going to be pretty seductive. We already uh, have some momentum of attachment and identification with that thought, right? With those emotions or feelings that go with the thought. Then it's not so easy to see, oh, that's just a thought being known. Because the mind is already in the mode of, no, I'm thinking here, thank you, you know, and this is important, otherwise I wouldn't be thinking this. And I'll get back to the meditation, don't worry, you know. This is actually why I'm sitting. I've been wanting to figure this out. We, when we're in the middle of a drama or, you know, whatever the proliferation's about, from inside that bubble, it always seems appropriate to be in that bubble, right? Because that's the very nature of these self-centered dramas. They're self-defining, they're self-reinforcing. They always make sense. From You know, when you're really angry, from within the anger, it makes sense that we're angry. But if we have a dear friend who can be a powerful mirror for us and say something like, do you, do you see what you're doing? Do you sense what you look like? Can I just take a videotape of you and show this back to you so you see what I see? You know, then we might realize, oh yeah, I'm deluded, right? I'm caught in this, whatever that loop is, whatever that bubble is, and we're grateful for someone to help pop it. So we realize, I don't have to be the person that's that bubble defines. I can, in a sense, step out of it or pop it. And it always can be a poignant feeling when we put something down, but it's not as, it's not as painful or difficult as when we continue being lost in it. So first step is this humility that allows us to make the resolve to put down the world. That allows us to pick up this basic training. These first two, most of what we do in a set. Remembering the resolve, this is the time to put it down. Right? For this 30 minutes, it's safe not to figure out my life, not to plan, not to do, but just to practice being in the moment and take up the training, this continuity of present moment awareness, the non-conceptual present moment awareness. And then I can study all of what arises to interrupt the continuity of awareness. And then the fourth is to study the beautiful, stable, balanced, clear, kind, insightful 
qualities of mind that begin to arise. This is the mind we'd like to live our whole life with. Now, initially, the, seeing this mind, you know, often in this tradition we'll call that samadhi. Samadhi is usually badly translated as concentration, a concentrated mind. A better translation is a stable mind or a unified mind. And one of the best definitions I've heard, it's a little bit more complicated, is it's a mind where all the different aspects of the mind are working in sync, all in line, all in sync, in terms of better understanding the way it is, better seeing and understanding the way it is. So when every, because the mind isn't just one thing, it's these, you know, the activity of mind, all these different overlapping patterns, related patterns, right? But when they're all unified, working together, in the same way like our body, when it gets really healthy, it's kind of humming along, and the dis- different systems are working together. There's a way, you know, its own way of communicating with, you know, electronic signals through the neurons and the chemical communication with hormones and other substances, right? So the body is all the different parts, the different organ systems. There's a way. And when there's real health, then the body has quite a bit of resilience. And it's the same thing when the mind comes together around this activity of seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. And when that's really resonant, really stable, we call that samadhi. And then we want to study that samadhi. We want to get really familiar with it. We want to appreciate it. It's often pleasant. It feels good. So you can't really study samadhi, the wholesome qualities of the mind, unless you have some skill not being confused by what interrupts the continuity of awareness. Because the cause for samadhi is the continuity of present moment awareness. And you can't have the continuity of present moment awareness unless you're willing to take up the training, which means you have to put down the world. Because worrying about our life and all my stories and regurgitating the past that is completely different than present, the continuity of present moment awareness. One is being lost in the thoughts we have about life, and the other is using the sensitive mind, the knowing mind, to be aware of the activity of the mind and body in and of itself. So sight is just sight, sound is just sound, thought is just thought, and tracking that and then seeing what interrupts it, and then with enough momentum, seeing the wholesome quality starting to get established in the mind, more of a settledness, more of a calm, more of a brightness, the energy builds. Remember, meditation, when it matures, is a hyper-energetic state. It's not like sinking into a gooey, tranquil state. That may feel good, and that does happen a lot for meditators, But it's not what we'd call a good sit. It's what we'd call a slip, uh, a slip, a sit that's, you know, overtaken by sloth and torpor, by sleepiness or dullness, right? It may feel pleasant, but we're not going to learn anything when those qualities are strong in the mind. 
So samadhi is both hyper-energetic, but the energy that's there doesn't neurotically need to do anything. So the mind, the heart, the body, it actually viscerally feels bright. And you'll, even as this, these beautiful qualities mature, you'll see, even if it doesn't matter how you're sitting, you'll see your posture shift a little bit, like the alignment in the spine. There's sort of an inner intelligence or inner composure. Even if you have a 95-year-old body or if you have a lot of injuries, within the context of your own body, you'll feel the energy building as the samadhi deepens. So on the one hand, a lot of stillness, a lot of stability, a lot of tranquility, and not opposed to that, a lot of energy. Because a lot of times, in a superficial way, we think it's got to be one or the other, either tranquility or a lot of brightness and alertness. But you'll find, if you develop your practice, that they come together, and that's what we call samadhi. A lot of settledness and a lot of alertness, a lot of brightness. And that mind is really ready to see things as they are. It can have what we say in Buddhism, insight. It can see things about the nature of the mind that it hasn't yet seen. And that's an insight. And that's the next step, where when samadhi is there, when the mind is in this beautiful, balanced, alert, and relaxed, stable, then the mind sees something about the nature of experience. Now, we're not studying things in terms of me. We're just studying the movement of mental and physical activity. And we're seeing that it's more of a process. So even the body, seeing, thinking, we don't see it as a noun, as a something. We see it as a flow, like a river. Seeing is like a river. Hearing is like a river. Sensation, sensing sensation is like a river. Awareness of thoughts. Have you had that experience in your sit sometimes where you're not addicted or attached, identified with the thoughts? And they, it's just like there's a, a fountain of verbiage of mental activity. Have you ever had that experience? Just sort of flowing, right? So you're getting a sense that this level of the thinking mind, it's not me thinking like a noun, Mark Nunberg sitting there thinking thoughts. It's just this flow, a movement of, and sometimes when the mind is really stable and relaxed, the flow of mental activity It's not even complete thoughts. Little fragments of images, fragments of thoughts. Doesn't even, nobody is making it or demanding that it makes sense. It's just a movement of mental activity, movement of sensation. Here with samadhi, even the um, idea of the body really loses its hold on the mind. And so the body loses its sense of shape. Because shape, like the shape I think my body has, that's actually more of an idea than the reality of sensation. When you're just aware of the movement of sensation, the body loses its sense of shape, weight, and it's just like a movement of energetic sensations, flowing, moving, never becoming a solid entity that we usually imagine the body to be, you know, blood, bone, flesh, 
That's not the subjective experience of it. So from that point of view, from the point of view of samadhi, that balanced, stable, alert, and relaxed awareness, everything is seen as a changing process. Everything is seen in a very impersonal way. It's just like a flow. There's no mark there. It's just cause and effect or this conditional unfolding of thought, mental activity, bodily activity, expressing its nature. So it has a very impersonal feel, a very ephemeral, changing, insubstantial feel, not really providing any satisfactory ground for me, for my ego, for the sense of self. Right? And the insight is the mind, and usually in little glimpses, realizing the absurdity of attachment, of clinging, of trying to make the underlying reality more than what it is. But when we're deluded, when we're not paying attention, when we're more in our thoughts about things, life, my life, my experience, it seems to make sense to take a hold of it, to grasp it, to want it to be my savior, you know, like making my life work for me. I mean, we say this all the time. How can I make my life work for me? How can I bend the circumstances of my life to my liking? How can I get in there and uproot the stuff that I, that scare me, that I, I don't want to live with? But when we're in this place of samadhi, and we're observing, we're opening to the way it is, the body and mind, the activity of the body and the mind, the conclusion the, the wise mind draws, it's not even you doing it, but just the mind in that place over a long period of time, touching that place, sustaining in that place, the conclusion, the insight that's naturally drawn is attachment, grasping, taking things personally is insane. Letting go is wise. So letting go happens simply because the mind, the wisdom in the mind, sees the way it is, and letting go happens. And then the last stage of meditation practice, your daily sit, is just a few moments at the end appreciating it. Even if you spent your whole time with the first step, just finding little moments where you feel like you have some faith that putting down the world is the right thing to do, right? Still, at the end, it's good to take a few moments and just appreciate that you had enough space in your life to sit down and to contemplate what's really a value, like deepening understanding, instead of just, you know, that proverb again, what's the point of running when we don't know the way? Just sort of getting into the rat race only to end up exhausted at the end of the day and wondered, wondering, what was that about? Haven't we had times in our life after an especially wild or big swirl? It might have been a week, might have been a year, might have been a decade of your life, you know, and then it ends, whatever that swirl, that drama was about, and we go, well, what was that about? You know, it was sort of like we were in a little spell where something seemed so important, completely lost. Often it's a relationship or some passion. And then we come out of it and we realize, 
although it made a lot of sense within the spell, once I've stepped out of it, once it's dropped away, I realize that didn't really have much to do with real happiness. It, and, and at its best, it was a distraction. And at its worst, it caused a lot of suffering for myself and others. So we're really grateful for this time we put aside. This is a real privilege to have a human life where you've received the teachings, where you have the space in your life to actually put some time aside. Not so many human beings have that privilege. And, um, yeah, we want to be grateful for it. So to have a little time at the end before you get up to just reinforce the appreciation and a kind of a devotional energy, like a real love for this work. Because if we don't love it, we're not going to do it. We won't go back to the, you know, put aside the time and remember, oh yeah, I do, I am willing to put down the world. I am willing to pick up this training. I am willing to see what interrupts the training. I am willing to appreciate the beautiful qualities to really get a sense of samadhi as it develops and then to use it to have insight into the changing nature of experience, the impersonal nature, the unsatisfactory nature of experience so that letting go happens and realizing the peace and the freedom of that letting go and to appreciate that. So like I said, I'll put this up on the blog in case you want this list of seven steps. But we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice for some folks to share your own experience with your daily sitting practice, what gets in the way, what value you have found in that. Of course, any questions about what I've said tonight. And it's nice to share your name if you'd like. Yeah, please, you want to start us off? Hi, my name is, is Brian. I guess I have a question about stages. I'm not sure if it's two or three or both. Sometimes when I when I sit, there's, I don't know, kind of a, a stormy roil of anxiety in my gut. And I have trouble acknowledging it and getting it to go away. Yeah. But and, why do you need it to go away? To, to maintain my the present moment awareness to say, oh, this is just anxiety right. and it feels like this. Can this be okay? And then, Because sometimes those underlying experiences of anxiety or whatever it might feel like can be a really good meditation object. So let's say we're at that level of the training where we feel pretty committed, pretty resolved to putting aside the time. So then we're using the underlying feeling or whatever shows up. Either we're going back to our basic training, like back to the breath, or if something shows up that's pretty resonant and seems, in a sense, to be asking for attention, as long as we can be with the unpleasantness of the anxiety without getting tight or controlling, it might be even better as a training ground than the sort of basic training ground of the breath or the whole body awareness. And you can remember, a lot of these training grounds work quite well with emotional content that's showing up. So, for example, breathing in, aware of the roiling anxiety in the belly. Breathing out, 
allowing the roiling anxiety in the belly to be. Breathing in, opening, allowing, letting it be. Exhaling, opening, allowing, letting it be. Right? Because the attention naturally will want to go there. Now, you don't really care whether it stays or goes away. But as long as it's there, the attention, because it's in a sense big, the attention's going to want to go there. So take advantage of that and work with it. As long as, if it's too intense, the mind, the basic habit of the mind is to want to think about it. We don't realize it. We think we're going to think about it in order to make it go away. But actually, when you study the dynamic, we think about it in order to not feel what we're feeling. So it's a defensive move move when we think about things a lot of the time. We're thinking about it to get away from the feeling, but the thinking about it is like a feedback loop. It keeps generating the feeling. So it's unproductive. So the point is to go right to what it feels like, the unpleasantness. Making peace, getting interested, continuity of awareness with the unpleasantness. And to realize it's actually safe. And pain, unpleasantness, can be a very good meditation object as long as it's not so intense that all we do is tighten up around it. And then when we do tighten up around it, then take your attention away from it. Open to hearing, open to whole body. You can even open your eyes, right? Because then the mind needs a break. And then it still may be there in the background, but you're not on purpose putting your attention right to the unpleasantness of it. But you're not going to the thinking of it either. You're on purpose, even though it still may be the predominant thing in your experience, you're not letting the attention go there because you're taking a break. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Oh, there, yeah. Hey, my name is Jesse Reisdorf. And um, about the, the daily practice, I have, I have um, for a long time, I've done Qigong and, you know, sitting, posture, meditation. And so I really like, I appreciate that, that uh, common ground is here. Um, I guess I've had a lot of, lot of experiences with meditation, um, kind of more, more into like tantric type of stuff maybe, but, um, I guess I wondered about one of the philosophies that I'd kind of read about or heard about, um, about like kind of the mind being like a mirror and, you know, meditation kind of wipes it clear or maybe like a window I wondered if there's any thoughts on that. Yeah, one thing, especially given what you said earlier about your experience with Qigong and Tantra practice is, you know, there are different types of meditation and and especially some of the healing forms of meditation, it's really the purpose is to affect the energetic system of the mind and body. But in awareness practice, the purpose is to understand. So they're really different systems. I mean, there's some similarities that sitting down, stabilizing the awareness, but the intention is different. One is to affect some change, right? Like a healing or a, a moving of energy. And the other is to understand the changing and personal and unsatisfying nature to 
allow for this natural letting go of attachment. So just to kind of keep that in, in mind. And, uh, you know, the other thought I had with your sharing is just to remind people that it's not easy to sit alone in a regular way. Some of you maybe are more naturally disciplined or just have a lot of wholesome motivation and can do that. But remember, Common Ground has open sitting time every morning from 6.30 to 9, Monday through Saturday, and 8 to 10 on Sundays. And you can come for any half an hour period in that, in that uh, time frame and just sit with the community because it really supports your practice being uh, with other folks. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Want to pass the mic over here? I'm Mike, and uh, I just want to share that uh, kind of the phrase that you often use, force of habit, has become a really kind of helpful tool for me and in a mantra in a way because I find, uh, you know, just observing patterns of the mind throughout the day that, you know, when when aversion arises, there often kind of develops this blame game or guilt depending on whatever thought patterns are coming up. But there's something about the phrase force of habit that's like more innocent. And it's like, you know, because habit is something that we experience that often externalizes as well. So we know we know it well, and it just for some reason for me, has like a very uh, innocent um, characteristic to it where it's like, oh, well, that's just force of habit. I mean, I can't blame that. You know, it's just there. So yeah, wanted to share that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a deep liberation to see. I mean, it's interesting because habits, on the one hand, we have to be responsible for them. But on the other hand, they're not self. They're not personal, right? Do you personally make your habits arise and express themselves? No, they do that on their own, don't they, our habits? So if there's a particular situation in your life where you experience a lot of fear, do you have to initiate that fear? Or does it arise naturally due to cause and effect? So we don't do the wholesome and the unwholesome habits. But... In a sense, we say, I'm responsible for being aware of the habit energies. I'm responsible for relating to them skillfully because otherwise they can definitely sweep us away, right? We get identified, we get lost in them, dig our hole deeper. Thanks, Mike. Want to pass it straight back? I'm Caroline. Um, I have a question about samadhi. Um, because this is something that I keep coming back to and struggle with in this tradition um, that I just feel like I don't fully understand. Um, you were talking about samadhi and that kind of the impersonal nature of it. And I, you know, seeing is just seeing. Um, thoughts are just thoughts. And I see that and I see how helpful that can be. But at the same time, I feel like I don't want I don't want things to be impersonal. I want it actually to be more personal. Like the difference between attachment and commitment, like I want to see actually more clearly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. So yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I've, I've encountered people in my life who, who call themselves Buddhists and kind of opt out and kind of say, oh, it's just neurons or oh, it's just hormones or something and, and don't kind of commit to 
seeing and really being there and interacting. And um, I guess I guess I just would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you could slap them and see how they respond. <laughs> Is that just sensation being known? Right. There's a. Somebody I was really into when I first started my practice, Swami Shivananda, he was quite famous in India, an Indian man. He died in like 1964, so I never met him. But I knew several of his students who uh, were also Indian but came to the West to teach. And he had something he called uh, SB40, shoe beating 40 times. And I don't know if some of you know Indian culture. It's like really uh, uh, against the etiquette to like to point your feet or to touch somebody with your shoe is like a big no-no in that culture. So to hit somebody with a shoe, some of the people remember in, was it Iran or Iraq, uh, somebody threw a shoe at President Bush way back when? And it was like, we don't realize like how offensive that is from their point of view. So he said, if you meet somebody who seems like a really wise person, check it out by beating them with a shoe 40 times and see how they respond, Right? So it's easy for someone to say it's just neurons, it's just hormones, nothing matters. But if that's really true, that nothing matters, then living a committed life, being loyal, caring about the whole world, why wouldn't you do that? See, it's very easy to say nothing matters when we don't want to do something. So... Deepening, the deepening insight that sees that all of this is nature and not me or mine, that doesn't get in the way of commitment. It actually allows for a more wholehearted participation. The only person that holds back or has a nihilistic view, that's a very self-centered view. Nothing matters to me. They don't say that last part to me. But when someone says nothing matter matters, the to me is implied. Because from the awakened point of view, you don't have opinions. It matters or it doesn't matter. Whatever this body and mind is, it's totally engaged. It's totally intimate. It's totally part of the dance. It's not a part in any way. It's completely in the middle, integrated, not apart, not separate. So all of those disengagements that we see, because it is a shadow, not just Buddhism, but you know any kind of sort of uh, basically using that sort of philosophical idea of materialism or um, this kind of nihilistic ideas and just dealing with it on a philosophical level. So then it's a self who's attached to an idea and acting as if that idea is some metaphysical truth. And they make a mess out of things, and they're hard to be around. Some uh, great sage, uh, um, Narragajuna, said something, this is a bad paraphrase, but something like, uh, people who are identified with emptiness are insufferable. Right? Hard to be around people who are identified, attached to the idea of emptiness or the idea that nothing matters. Right? It's a fixed view. And the whole point is to go beyond fixed views. But we, we have to be humble. We don't really know what that experience is like. 
What we can know is what it's like to have fixed views. That we can directly, immediately see all day long. And we can see when those fixed views get a little looser. And we can intuit that that's in the right direction. But we need to leave it here. It's nine or 8.30. Just take a few seconds, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Let go of the words. Appreciate the silence. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.